Okay, so I guess that means we're live. Okay, great. So it is December 22nd, 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and this is the next to last edition of the MMA Ratings Podcast for 2016. We have one more show next week. I'll talk about that later on, but first, my name is Rafael Garcia, and as always, you can find me at rgarcia underscore sports. You can catch me there. You can catch a lot of most of my work on MMA ratings. You can catch it there. Uh, fan-sided, Bloody Elbow, a few other places. But tonight we are focusing on mixed martial arts. And my co-host, uh, Shawan Humes, is on his way. And I think he is on his way home. So we can expect him to join us momentarily. He'll um, pop in as he normally does. But before he gets on, you know, we always like to talk about what we are running down on this week's show. We got quite a bit to talk about. It's funny, I was actually thinking that this week and next week was going to be kind of slow. But I'm clearly wrong about that because obviously we had UFC on Fox 22. Was that last weekend? Yeah, that was last weekend. And we're going to talk about that card and some of the things that went down. We have Bellator 169. Uh, Shawan wants to look at the main event between King Mo and Satoshi Ishii. But we also got quite a bit of news to talk about. We have Cyborg and USADA, UFC 207, Garbrandt and Cruz. We have a couple of um, other things that we definitely want to talk about today. So expecting a pretty good show, pretty good um, conversation about what's going on inside and out of the cage. So let's go ahead and jump right on in. So the first topic of today is looking back at UFC on Fox 22, where we saw a couple of different things happen, um, probably the most interesting of which occurred in the main event. But I just want to look at the card as a whole. And let's, let's, um, let's kind of break this down a little bit. You know, I want to leave the fight-by-fight fight breakdowns to Schwan for sure. But I want to make sure we pick out a couple of interesting components, some conversations that have been going on since that fight on Saturday. Of course, you know, we had the main event where Michelle Watterson defeated Paige Van Zandt by rear naked choke in less than four minutes. And it's, I, I'm not going to take credit for it. You know, I definitely did pick. I was hoping for Michelle to get the win. I wasn't expecting it to, to occur just because, you know, she had been out for such an extended period of time. I think she was gone for more than a year. She had multiple injuries during that time before coming into that, coming into this fight. And she was facing off against Paige, who um, put up a very good win the last time she stepped into the cage and who just she's, she was the bigger fighter. And I thought that her pace and her strength was going to overwhelm Michelle, but but that definitely wasn't the case. As Watterson reminded us all, not to kind of overlook her again. I feel like she's really been overlooked since. You know, I even thought about if she's really been overlooked since joining UFC in 2015. 
However, we forget, you know, she's only had that one fight there, which she looked really good in, but she hasn't had the opportunity to compete in Octagon as much and remind everybody that she's someone who is a viable contender that's been doing this for a while. But she definitely put herself on the map with that big win on Saturday. Now the next question becomes, what do you do next with her? And also, what do you do with Paige, who took yet another loss? I think the first um, the first idea is with Michelle. You know, definitely everyone is talking about that potential fight with Rose Namajunas, because uh, I guess a lot of people automatically thought about Rose first and foremost as the next person that Michelle should face. And that would be a very compelling fight. I mean, obviously nothing has been booked or planned, but both women have spoken about it and that the fight interests them. So I'm hoping that that's what, what comes next for her. Um, I always wondered how she would fare in this division as a whole. And this is an important one for her because uh, while I, I'm not going to get too far ahead of myself and say that Paige was the person that was tapped to hopefully be the, the face of this of the women's strawweight group but big things were expected of her and, and unfortunately this is just another speed bump in that run i don't think it's the end all be all we'll talk more about that once shawan gets here but it's still a setback but anyway we're focusing on michelle first and foremost and i i would love to see that fight against nama Yunus first there's other women there. Definitely, she was supposed to fight Tisha Torres earlier, I think it was late, later last year, but um, that's when the first inj injury came up and she was forced off of that event. Stop. Um, she was forced off of, of <laughs> that event and since home. But yeah, so there's definitely either one of those two names that are there who I would like to see, but. Someone it has. To, I think it has to be someone within like the top five. She was sitting at eleven coming into that fight, and I think Paige was at number seven. And let's see. Let's see. Shawn says he's in. Let's see if he's on the show. All right. Let me send him the invite again. But yeah, so she was number 11 coming into the fight, and Paige was number 7. I expect that to basically flip, where Watterson would now be the 7th ranked, ranked woman, and Paige would be number um, 11, maybe a little bit lower. Watterson even, could even find herself a little bit higher than that. But either way, I see a, um, a, a fight with one of the top five women coming up next, with the winner potentially being the next to face Joanna in the near future. As for Paige, um, I think that she's definitely in a holding pattern right now. We forget how old she is. I think she's only like 22 years old. So she has a lot to learn and a lot to gain when it comes to the sport as a whole. And I think that this fight kind of revealed that she's still very new to this. She's someone who, yeah, she has the athleticism to be someone who is great in competition. Uh, she has the face and she has that look that the UFC definitely loves to promote being, uh, you know, a blonde, attractive white female. She definitely has that look that they love to push to the forefront, but she just doesn't have that skill set to really get there quite yet. Um, granted, this is only her, 
think this is on her second career loss. It might be her third. I think she's lost to, yeah, this is a, her third career loss. So, uh, let me see. So there's still, I mean, there's still a lot of growth opportunity there, but I, I just think that they need to just slow her down a little bit. Um, and then unfortunately, this strawweight division doesn't really allow for that because it's just it's deep from top to bottom. But I'm sure that they could they could find some good booked and some good some well some well booked some well placed matchups for her in 2017 that allow her to get some wins and get back into this title hunt. I definitely don't think she should be main eventing any events and being at such a a such a position. Yes, she is a face, but that just shouldn't be the case right now. Hey, what's up, Sean? You there? Yeah, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. Um, so we are talking about the main event from last week where Watterson defeated Van Zant by uh Renekka Choke in like four minutes. And when we talked about this last week, man, we both kind of came to the consensus that we thought that uh, Van Zandt was going to be able to overwhelm much of what Michelle was doing, but uh, we saw the exact opposite. Uh, talk to me about what you saw on Saturday. Well, right before the fight, I actually was on Twitter and I was like, Van Zandt should win this unless her coach, Justin Buckholtz, somehow messes this up. And I really felt that the things we addressed last week were actually fundamentally, technically, and strategically correct. It wasn't just things we made up. Michelle Watterson had been out for an extended period of time during uh, for a myriad of injuries, knee, hand, arm, I think. She had been out for over a year, so there was no way she could really be effectively sharp. No matter how much sparring you get in, there's a certain ceiling you can get as far as the cardio because the point of it is to push you, not to really hurt you or not to really engage you on a certain, past a certain point. So it's a different situation than being in an actual fight. Michelle Watterson does have a bad habit of falling into clinches. Also a friend of the show, Andrew Pearson, me and him had had many discussions about this. As clean as striker she is at range, she tends to lean in on her shot. She tends to get off balance and, and fall into clinches or force clinches, even when she's winning exchanges. It's happened in two other fights that, we, that, I've, that I've observed. So it's not something that I just made up. What I felt was Paige Van Zandt was going to come out aggressive and push a pace and work into the clinch and actually force Watterson to work instead of allowing Watterson to dictate the pace and the place of the fight and letting her fight at her leisure. Paige, for the second fight in a row, Paige Van Zandt came out trying to strike at range, trying to hop around, throw kicks, pot shot, throw jabs, things that are completely against her game and against her maximum effectiveness she gave Watterson control of the fight instead of coming out there and getting in Watterson's face getting her hands on her making Watterson work and using her physicality she stayed at the area that Watterson had the biggest advantage over and last week both of us said Watterson is better everywhere technically she's better on the feet on the ground she's better off her back she's better only thing she might not be better in is wrestling over actually but everywhere else she's light years ahead of Van Zandt and the only chance Van Zandt had was to make it a physical battle of athleticism and activity to take advantage of what I would deem to be suspect cardio and a size and strength advantage that Paige Van Zandt had. Paige Van Zandt threw all that away and she came out there hopping around, staying at range and she got picked apart on the feet. She was letting Michelle Watterson dictate. Even when she got into the clinch, Watterson put her up against the cage. 
She didn't put Watterson up against the cage. She didn't press, she didn't force a pace. She didn't get her hands on her. She let Watterson dictate where the fight was going to go, when the fight was going to go, and how the fight was going to go. And she got exposed as a result for it. So it's, Paige didn't fight anything like I thought she would fight. She fought the dumbest fight possible. I, I hate to say that because she's not a stupid person, but she fought the dumbest fight possible. And if her coaches somehow let her go out there doing that nonsense, then I have to question their credentials and their, their program in transitioning from fighter to coach, because there's no way they could have thought that that fight, that strategy would have worked against Van, against Watterson. That might've worked against Beck Rawlings, who's not the athlete Van Zandt is, who's a little bit limited as far as her striking and has, has had cardio issues to begin with, but that's not going to work against Watterson. So she tried a stupid game plan and she got punished for it. And that's exactly the story of the fight. Has she fought the way she's, the way I've known her to fight and the way she's most effective fighting, she it would have been a win. Of worst case scenario, it would have been a competitive fight. But she didn't. She fought dumb. She fought scared. And she fought a, she fought a technical fight that she had no chance of winning because she's not a truly, in the truest sense of the word, a technical fighter. She's a physical, cardio-based, aggressive fighter who blends in aspects of technique little by little by little physically overwhelms her opponents and then throws in the technique here or there in, in scrambles or in clinches to get submissions or just to beat up the opponent. But she's not a technical fighter and she tried to do it and she got exposed for it. And I can't even say it's exposed because everybody knows that Paige Van Zandt's technique is not razor sharp, not on the feet, not on the ground. A friend of the show, Patrick Wyman, a co-host of a podcast, Heavy Hands, he's mentioned this many times. She doesn't have the attention to detail and the subtle nuance to do the things that she wants to do at range. So every time she tries to do it, it's fine when it's against a lesser athlete, she can overwhelm them. But against somebody who's a comparable athlete with better skills, she gets exposed every time. And the two times she's done it, she's gotten exposed. And I don't I don't know why they let her do that. I don't know if she's going against her coaches or her coaches just aren't that good either. But so let's let's look at that. We're gonna, um, we're gonna talk more about what Vincent is doing or not doing in a second, because I'm gonna talk about both her and Sage Northcutt, but what do you think about this win for Watterson? I'm sure you've seen now that um, the, the ratings have come back and, and they've talked about how this is the biggest UFC on Fox Fox card in, I think it was three or four years. So it, it, she won when the lights shone, were on the brightest. And I've, I mean, I've even said, you know, she was very overlooked in this division, but that's basically because she was inactive. But if you look at the rest of the women from, like, in the top 10, where do you see the, her going next, and how far can she really go at 115 pounds? Before I talk about where she can go next, I have to say one thing. Recently, I've been reading articles about Watterson talking about who she wants to fight next and who she wants to challenge, and that she thinks she might be ready for a title shot. But for the life of me, I can't understand while 3 million people are watching and the microphone is in your hands and you have the power to put some pressure on the UFC brass, why in the world you don't say, I want this person or I want the champion? You say it two days later on a, on a website that's popular, but it ain't getting 3 million people watching. So now she decides after, after she's out of the focus and out of the spotlight, that's when she decides to say who she wants and what fight she wants. Big yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of that comes down a lot. Like, as we always say, a lot of that comes down to these athletes. A lot of these athletes not treating themselves as professionals, um, and not not understanding the aspect of 
prize fighting. You know, Mickey Gall knows how to do that, and, and he's younger, and I'm sure he has the people around him telling him to do that. Um, this is kind of like a trend that you see with the Jackson Wink guys at that they haven't really taken that that next step. But that's a, I think that's a whole whole other conversation. Yeah, I think she definitely dropped the ball there, and I mean she's not the only one who does that. But I, I'm, unfortunately, that's just going to continue happening over and over again um, as people keep making that mistake to not respect their position as actual professional prize fighters instead of just martial artists. Yeah, exactly. And somebody told me, you know, maybe she's just very polite. And I'm like, you know what? That She could have used that to her advantage. She's super polite. She's soft-spoken. She could have found a polite, soft-spoken, respectful way to call somebody out and thereby showing all the other fighters who have to be rude or crass or over the top that you can do it with dignity. You can do it with respect. You can do it with politeness and still get your point across. She she dropped the ball on so many levels in that instance, and nobody's talking to me off that point. Period. Mm-hmm. And where she can go, where she stands. I've been a huge Waterson fan. The main reason I didn't pick her in this fight was because she'd been out for over a year and a half. I had no idea where her cardio was, how her body would hold up in a tough physical fight, which she didn't get, and where her timing would be for a fighter who comes from a TMA background. For all y'all who don't know, that's traditional martial arts. A lot of their techniques, whether it's offense or defense or counters, is all based on timing, technique re- technique recognition, and timing. Your timing can't be super sharp when you're not facing comparable athleticism and you're not in actively fighting, in my opinion. You lose a little bit of that. And I don't care what Dominic Cruz says. Even though he looks sharp against TJ Dillashaw, imagine how much sharper he had been had he been fighting regularly. So I went against her based on the fact that she hadn't been fighting and she had been injured. But as far as the technical skill set, she can do it all. She can wrestle. She's 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 not a technical dynamo on the ground, but she's got the fundamentals down. She's got a solid transition game, and she has enough of a fundamental game where she's not going to make silly and stupid mistakes to put herself in bad positions that are going to allow someone to get mount, get on top of her, or get in her in a position where she can be submitted. She knows how to calmly work her way through bad spots. She knows how to avoid bad spots because she has a sense of she has a sense of poise, self-control, and understanding of strategy and technique that allows her to navigate certain situations that someone like Paige Van Zandt can't. So as far as her standing in the division, she's probably, at worst, one fight away from a title shot because Joanna has been stomping everybody left and right. It's similar to a situation that um, Demetrius Johnson has where she's beating people so clearly and dominantly that if you're in the top five person, you're eventually going to get your shot. You just have to stay in the top five long enough to get to her. If Watterson fights a Nama Yunus, who'd be the only other Nama Yunus or a Carolina would be the only other fights I would think that would stand between her and Joanna. Maybe if she fought Claudia, but I can't see her taking a fight like that. I can't see the point of her taking. I can see Claudia taking the fight because it puts her one step closer, but it seems a little bit risky for Michelle Watterson to fight Claudia, but Claudia, Rose, or Carolina would all be the only other fights I would put her in before getting her a shot at Joanna. Like I said, uh, she's got good movement, good accuracy, a wide range of strikes. She can wrestle a little bit and she can grapple. I'm not sure about her physicality or her durability at this weight class, but as far as the technical and strategical sense, there's very few, there's very few fighters who have her poise and her discipline. While yeah, I don't think anyone wants to really I don't think anyone wants to face um, Gadelia at any point in time. She is she is the number two in that division, and I really do believe that if Joanna wasn't there, she'd be or um, she'd be the, the the champion of the weight class. But 
um, before we talk about what to do next with Van Zandt, I want to lump her into the conversation with Sage Northcutt. Let's talk about Mickey Gall versus Sage Northcutt. What we saw back and forth, a lot of back and forth action at 170 pounds. Um, it was a fairly entertaining fight. I liked what I saw. Uh, we had a actual coworker of mine who put up a bet that um, if Sage wins, he was going to get the same haircut that Sage. He was, he was going to get his hair frosted tipped or whatever the hell that was. That's a brave and, man. And, and the funny thing is, right when he said that is when Northcutt dropped him, dropped Mickey Gall with, um, and I think that was in the first round, right when he dropped him. So uh, it, it got pretty tense there for a second, but we saw the outcome of what was Mickey Gall getting the win by submission there. So talk to me about what you saw there. Like, um, were you surprised with how that fight went? I, I was definitely more surprised with just how back and forth the fight was a lot of people i saw a lot of people were picking Northcut to win and it almost came to that point so what were your thoughts and were you really surprised with what you saw at the end of the day well a lot of this and i'm gonna have to do the i'm, I'm gonna have to do the professional but not necessarily the cool thing to do which is plug my own work i just did a piece that was on uh, our site mmareadings.net regarding developing a prospect and the first thing i addressed was athleticism anybody who knows Sage Northcutt, his skills had never looked razor sharp. They never looked like he's a fighter beyond his years. What stands out to everybody and what gets everybody hope that he can be the next great fighter is his natural athleticism. Those backflips he does, the kicks he throws, the weight, the speed he moves in and out and throws punches, it's what stands out to you the biggest. And it's what makes him effective, even at this level, even though his skills on so many levels aren't UFC quality. It's that, it's that explosiveness, it's that physical strength, it's that power he has. And so we saw that on full display against Mickey Gall. The thing about it is Northcutt is lacking in some very key areas. And the, the main area, I mean, his striking defense is predicated on, once again, a traditional martial arts skill set, in and out, timing, technique, recognition. You can feign him or you can throw something he doesn't recognize. You'll put him down because he has no, he has no legitimate boxing offense or defense. He just doesn't. He's got fast hands. He can throw the punches fairly well but he doesn't really know how to box on a technical level. And that got exposed by Gall when Gall hooked his arm and threw that right hook and, and put him on his butt. The second thing he doesn't have is development in his grappling, in his defensive grappling, counter grappling, counter wrestling. It's been his Achilles heel in two fights in a row. Mind you, both fights went the same way. First round, he's landing effectively. He's lighting the guy up. He gets in a little bit of trouble on the ground, but survives. Second round, he's doing good work on the feet again, then gets taken down and submitted once he's unable to transition to a better position or transition back to his feet. Once the scramble's not there, once the escape isn't there, immediately using athleticism and a quick movement, he's stuck. And once he's stuck in, a, stuck in an area, the holes start showing up in his game, mostly in his ground game. And it's something they haven't addressed. They've kept Sage Northcutt super busy fighting, but they haven't spent enough time developing the finer points in this game, which is something I write about in my part two of my three-part uh, series of developing a prospect. He's been working hard in the gym. He's been dedicated to the craft, but what he hasn't had is specific structured development in specific aspects of the game. He's been doing too much general training, getting ready for an opponent, and that works. But the thing is, if you're not working on those holes all the time and working on them in a very structured manner and going over the top and addressing that problem, you won't be good enough to counter an opponent who's got the depth of skill and the awareness and the seasoned kind of strategic thinking that Mickey Gall has. Mickey Gall isn't a top-notch fighter. 
His striking defense is awful. His striking offense is pretty limited. But on the ground, he showed some real grappling chops. He's got better grappling than some guys who've got multiple UFC wins against multiple UFC-quality opponents. He's actually got a legitimate ground game where he can chain submissions together. He can work for position. He can work out of position. He can, tr- he can slowly take, he can take you down and slowly get into position and then finish you. That was, that was some excellent grappling he showcased. But Sage Northcutt doesn't have that. And that's all that that exposed to me, that Sage Northcutt hasn't developed his skills to the point where his athleticism makes a difference. His athleticism keeps him in fights, but his lack of skill and his lack of awareness is getting him killed once he faces guys who don't fold under the pressure of his athleticism. I think Sage still has potential, but he needs time to actually work on his craft. He doesn't need to be scheduled another fight three months from now or six months from now. He needs to have an extended period of time where he's addressing all aspects of his ground game in a comprehensive manner, not just focusing on takedown defense or submission defense. He needs to regularly and consistently be working with high-level people with high-level IQs to develop the skills necessary to survive and to win in extended grappling exchanges, not winning in scrambles or where you can explode out of a position. He can't depend on the athleticism. He's got to develop the skill and use athleticism to support that not lean on the athleticism as a crutch for a lack of skill or strategic awareness, which is what he's doing right now. Did you see that he's supposedly um, going to the Diaz brothers uh, for help? And it kind of loops back to what everyone's been saying, you know, that he needs to get away from his father. It's not because it's that. Problem. It's a le- I know people who know Sage Norcutt. I know the people, some of the people he's sparring with. He's not sparring with UFC quality guys. And the same thing, there's a lighter fighter, Bantamweight, Michael McDonald, Great physical talent, has some has some legitimate skills, but he's sparring with guys who wouldn't even be third or fourth tier fighters in the UFC. And when you spar with a guy who's that far behind you athletically, you can make up mistakes in positioning or mistakes in putting your head in the wrong way or not throw not bringing your jab back when you throw it or stand or staying in the pocket too long because your athleticism, your reaction, your timing, your body control allows you to navigate those spots. Even though technically, you should be getting lit up. And that's the problem. He's not facing guys with athleticism comparable to his or guys who are mentally and physically tough enough to take what he has to offer, where walk him down, and then put him in the spots where he can't function. That's all Brian Barberina did. That's all the guy he beat, the, the Hispanic guy, Marin. He beat him. That's all that Gall did. All they did was put him in, take what he had to offer, get in on him, walk him down, put him in positions he wasn't comfortable with, and work him over. Out of those three fights, that happened three times in a row four times in a row in the UFC. He's had a guy walk him down, put him in a bad spot, keep him in an extended grappling or wrestling exchange, and basically beat his ass. It happened against Cody Fister. It happened against Barbarina. It happened against, it happened against Gall. You know, that's, that's four guys who've done the same thing to him, and he still has not addressed that problem. He still, his coach hasn't addressed that problem. So he's got to get somewhere where guys can take what he has to offer, guys have comparable athleticism, and guys have the seasoning and awareness to not get flustered by his athleticism and his dynamic striking and his dynamic transitions and scrambles. He needs a better class of sparring partner. It's not just coach. You could have great coaching, but if I'm if you're sparring against me, great coaching isn't going to save you because I'm not a good enough person to push you. I'm not a good enough person to exploit the holes. And that's the problem. He's not facing guys who are good enough to exploit the holes. If he was, he wouldn't be in the same situation four fights in a row. Watch the tape. Cody Fister had him in extended grappling changes with beating him up. Brian Belverina beat him up, submitted him. Marin was beating him up and out-positioned him. 
and Gall outpositioned him and submitted him. Four fights in a row, the exact same thing happened. He couldn't, he lit somebody up, got time, got walked down, got put on his back, and got worked over. Even the fights he won and lost, the same thing happened. That's a problem that means that they are not addressing it. You should not be losing or getting hurt in the same manners four fights in a row. That shows a lack of strategic awareness, seasoning, coaching, and sparring on every single level. That shows a flaw, that you're getting beat up in the same way. That, that's embarrassing for any professional fighter. And if you're a professional fighter getting beat in the same way four times in a row or having the same problems four times in a row, you need to look at yourself. You need to look at your coaching staff. I'm dead serious. So I'm going to give you a chance to plug the work that you actually did just do and talk about what you would do. Um, so what would you do with Van Zandt, um, Gall, and Northcutt? You know, you have three fighters here who are all very good in their own different ways. And while they may not have that full set of skills that a fighter should have when they find themselves in the UFC, what would you do with... Don't go too. You don't have to get too, too, too ingrained. But what would you do with these these um, three competitors in order to help them get that growth that the UFC can see long term returns out of working with all three? Well, the, the within Gall's case, Gall's the easiest. He just he just he needs time. The fact of the matter, he's got that the the speaking aspect, the character, charisma aspect. He's got that down. But his wrestling isn't UFC level. And his striking defense or offense is not UFC level. Um, say Northcutt was putting it to him. He was putting it to him pretty bad up there. Um, Gall, even though he won decisively, it wasn't like he just ran through Northcutt. Everybody keeps saying he dominated. He didn't dominate him. He didn't run through him. He actually got him down the early in the first round and couldn't finish him. And he's a much better grappler than Northcutt. He just needs more time. And he's a guy who already has a good camp. He works with the Miller brothers. He was working with Frost the Hobby. So he's already taking the steps to prepare himself to be at UFC level. He's already doing that. He's the easiest person to resolve because you just need to give him time. I don't know who they match him up with, who's a, who's a vi enough, viable enough option, but he just needs time. In the case of Northcutt, he needs to change an environment. He needs to be in an environment where he's around comparable, athletically gifted fighters, and he needs to be around coaches, individual and overall coaches who are used to dealing with talent they know how to deal with talent they know how they know the shortcuts that people with talent take and they know how to expose those shortcuts and they have enough sparring and quality guys who can expose those shortcuts so that Northcutt has to pay attention to the details and has to learn how to work out of bad spots and has to learn how to mentally be tougher in these fights instead of just giving up position giving up the submission it, it's a mental thing with him he's not in the lifestyle he's not under the the rest he's not being pushed past a certain point so when he gets to that point in the cage he folds every single time it's not even a it's not a brutal point he's put it into it's just a point past what he's trained to do in the case of Paige Van Zandt um I think she's a little confused um as a person who likes all combat sports I remember George Foreman I read this about him he always wanted to be like Muhammad Ali he wanted to be fancy he wanted to stay on the outside he wanted to be slick pop his jab and dodge and run around the ring his coaches knew that wasn't going to be effective for him. So they let him do it early in, in the in his training camps, and then he slowly worked around to the style that actually worked for him, which is coming forward behind a hard jab, beating people up. Paige needs to go back to what she was doing before. I don't believe that Paige is ever going to be a super technical fighter, and I think people have got into her head about being super technical and slick and highlight real shots and kicks and punches. I don't think that's who she is. I think she's 
she, at her best instance, she'd be an educated brawler, a technical brawler, a person who uses pace, physicality, clinches, scrambles, and just sprinkles in, shows incremental improvements in technique. But she's never someone who's going to be a technical, a slick fighter or excessively technical fighter. Her, her advantage is always going to be that athleticism, that cardio, and that pace she brings. Once you take that out of it, she's no longer effective. So what they need to do is get her back into fighting the way she's supposed to fight, the one that got her all those fight, fight of the night um, bonuses, action pace, in your face, forcing a pace, getting your hands on somebody, and then slowly improve her entries, her exits from the clinches, her setups, and her overall groundwork so when she gets stuck in a position and can't scramble out, she actually knows how to work her way out of position instead of just forcing a scramble or exploding out. It's specific things that she's lacking. It's specific position, specific, specific technical, defensive techni techniques and offensive techniques that she doesn't have that's going to get her killed. But her trying to do a strictly technical, I'm going to outpoint you sort of game, I don't believe that's ever something she's going to be effective at. And as long as she tries to do that, she's going to continue to lose and lose in an embarrassing manner unless she's fighting somebody she's two or three times the athlete in. So I think they need to get her back to what works and just slowly make that a more technical version. Just make it more tech, just streamline it. Go from the this level slowly and move it up. Is that a five? Let's get to a six and a seven and an eight and a nine and a 10. But she's never going to be a purely technical fighter. I don't think she has the discipline. I don't think she has the awareness and the uh, patience and focus to do it. So yeah, I, I could definitely see like both of the, all three of those strategies working for each one of those um, young fighters. And it's funny, you know, we're talking about how to build prospects from you know the, in the initial phases all the way up to champion. When we had on UFC on Fox 22, we had at the end of a career of a fighter who did that growth and did that growth correctly. You know, we saw Uriah Faber as a young fighter, even before the days of the WEC. And he grew into what I believe is a Hall of Famer, someone who is a legend in the sport, especially within the lighter weight classes. But his career came to an end as he defeated Brad Pickett in a retirement fight in front of his hometown crowd. Um, what did you think of that fight? You know, he, I think he did look, he looked like he, he's doing this at the right time. He looked a little bit slower. Um, he looked like he had the skill set to overcome a Brad Pickett, but not the type of skill set that's going to allow him to continue beating some of these younger guys coming up. Um, he looked a little bit slower. He looked a little bit uh, more paced. And what was most interesting is during the post-fight interview, he was still breathing heavy. You know, Uriah Faber used to never breathe heavy. I don't care how long he fought. He would never, would never be breathing heavy when he's talking to... He's being interviewed after a win, but that wasn't the case um, on Saturday's fight card. So I'm thinking, you know, he's doing this at the right time and he's stepping away in the right way. Uh, what were some of your thoughts on his performance and what's next for him? Two things before I get into it. One, Uriah Faber and Bernard Hopkins both took their last fights on Saturday. Uriah Faber's fight turned out a lot better than Bernard Hopkins. Anybody who pays attention to boxing knows what I'm talking about. Two, before I get into Uriah Faber, Brad Pickett. I like you as a fighter. You're all action. You're all heart. You need to seriously consider retirement. It's getting bad now. He, he really needs to consider retirement. I like Brad Pickett, but if Uriah Faber's retiring and Uriah Faber was putting that kind of beating on him in the first round like that, Pickett needs to really consider another line of work moving forward as far as I can, I'm, con I'm concerned. And I'm Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely with you on that. Um, as far as Pitt Faber, um, 
I think you're right. Faber isn't the athlete he used to be in the set. You know, the funny thing is that even though he's probably lost a step or two, he's still probably be in the top five to 10 percentile of fastest, most athletic fighters in featherweight or bantamweight, to be quite honest, to be to actually be honest, he'd actually still be one of the more athletic people in either division. The problem is he kind of got set in a way in a style that played off those attributes. And once he started getting older and he started he lost that half second of a reaction time or half second explosive half step off his explosive first step or a shot, his whole game started falling behind because he didn't have the athleticism necessary to do the things he used to do. Now he had a lot of experience, so he knew how to pick his spots. He knew how to control the pace. He knew how to kind of put on a little bit of a show to keep guys off him. And with his submission game and the fact that he could scramble in spots, it always made him a threat where guys could never really try Uriah past a certain point. But technically speaking, he had, he had not so much regress as he hadn't improved to catch up to him now that he wasn't the dominant athlete that he was before. You saw that second rematch he had with Dominic Cruz. That was a competitive back and forth fight. You saw the third one. It's like he didn't even belong in the cage with him. And as and as a Uriah Faber fan, that kind of hurt me to see because um, Faber couldn't get by doing the things that he did before. There were certain things he could have done to be more competitive that he hadn't, in my opinion, didn't have the discipline or the technical background to do. So now that he's hit this limit, he's realizing I'm not the athlete I was. My chin's not there. My recovery's not there. My hand speed, my explosiveness isn't there to the degree that I've always had it at. So rather than me go on and just drag on and and wait it out till I start getting knocked out and handled left and right, I'm going to leave on a high note. And that's what he did. I still think he could fight in the UFC. I think if he was in Bellator, he could probably he might even be he might even be a champion in Bellator. He could still compete in the UFC. There's guys he could still beat. There's there's guys he could still beat at featherweight and guys he could beat at bantamweight. The thing is, he'd no longer be a championship title contender anymore. As much as he may believe he is, he's no longer that guy. Um, his his accomplishments stand. His accomplishments stand. He, he's one of the highest rate submission guys. He's fought a who's who in every division, and he helped establish the lighter weight divisions. Before there was a Connor, Aldo wasn't anybody until he beat Faber. Nobody cared about Dominic Cruz until he had beef with Faber. And that's not mentioning the other guys he's brought in division, Garbrandt, Dillashaw, and countless others. He's brought into featherweight and bantamweight. Joseph Benavides, another guy. Bang Ludwig is the guy who got to start with Faber. So Faber's contributed a lot. But as a fighter, I feel like he's hit his wall. And um, w- once he started slowing down, it was only a matter of time before he ended up where he was at. It's kind of like a Roy Jones in that instance, or Sergio Martinez to be a little bit closer. A guy with skills, a guy with seasoning, a guy with heart, but a guy who's who, once he lost his first step, once he lost his top-end athleticism, a guy whose ability to be effective at the highest level no longer existed because he, he just lacked the depth of skill. And with his many fights as he's been in, as long as he's been in the game, you, you wouldn't think a depth of skill would be the problem. Um, that's what kept Uriah from being a champion. That's what kept Uriah from continuing his career. The, the skills just weren't there to make up for the lack of athleticism he had lost. So, yeah, I think that this is definitely the right time for him to walk away from the sport. I think he's still going to do some great things. I hope they finally get him behind the um, microphone on Fox and commentate. But I think he's going to even start doing some bigger things than that. Um, you know, UFC on Fox 22 wasn't the only event that was going on this weekend. We also had Bellator 169. So let, let's let's look back and see um, what you thought of that main event. I know you definitely wanted to speak in depth about um, some uh, 
of what went down between Kingmo and Satoshi Ishii. So uh, what were some of your thoughts on that? I'm going to give you a moment to touch on that main event. Well, a lot of people, a lot of people, and I, and I, I don't, not one of the people who says that fans are dumb, but they don't understand anything. I'm not going to say that because a lot of people watch fights, so they understand what they, they understand what they like, they understand what they don't. And to a degree, if you watch long enough, you'll start understanding, picking up on things when fights. But a lot of people felt like King Mo was making this fight boring, or King Mo was unable to perform. And a lot of it isn't so much of a lack of effort or a lack of interest, the fact of the matter is when you're fighting somebody, it's not your job to make the fight exciting. It's not your job to make the fight high pace and highlight reels and give KOs. As a fighter, your job is always to go in there and win. And I've talked to him before and it's it's his thing. I'm here to win. If I can win by knockout or something spectacular, that's great. But being in a spectacular fight and losing, even though everybody says there's no losers and your stock rises, that's that's not always necessarily true. You still lost. And, the, and the, even though they say there's no losers, when they start negotiating with you, they look at all those losses and that affects your bottom line, that affects where you're placed on cards and that affects the opportunities and the opponents you get to fight. So let's get away with the whole, there's no losers in their fight. There's many losers, namely the person who actually lost the fight. Ishii, if you saw the fight with Rampage, if you pay attention to Ishii, Ishii likes to stay outside. He likes to use that outside leg kick and the inside leg kick to wear on your legs so you can't generate power, so that you can't have mobility because he's kind of either knocking you off balance from the inside or knocking you off from balance from the outside and using that attrition to wear on your legs so you can't move around and you're basically limited to standing in front of him and coming right in or standing in front of him when he comes right in on you. That's when he likes to tie you up and get those, put you up against the cage and beat you up or throw you on the ground and get control and win rounds with control or win rounds beating you up on the ground. We saw him do that against Rampage. We've seen him do that against other guys. King Mo just wasn't allowing him to do that. He was getting off the angles. He's faking, he's using feints. He's coming in, coming out. He's circling around, trying to look for openings. All he's trying to do is fight a smart and disciplined fight because he knows that if he allows Ishii to control the pace, Ishii will tie him up. That's why every time Ishii tied him up, he was stepping out and he would step back and then step out because he didn't want to back straight up into the fence or allow Ishii to get a clinch where he could have tried to throw him or try to trip him and have to work with Ishii on top of him because Ishii's top control is actually pretty legitimate and his ground and pound is not bad. So what he did was just, I'm going to work my angles, I'm going to try to use my jab, I'm going to feign him a lot and control him with feints, and then I'm just going to pick my shots and work him over. And that's essentially what he did. If you listen to the fight, his corner man was saying, go to the body, because Ishii was keeping range so he could use his kicks, and he's moving away from Mo's power and keeping a tight guard so Mo couldn't get through to land those power shots. So when the guy's too hard to hit up top and he's staying a, li a little bit out of range and moving around a little bit too much, what do you do? You attack the body. You break down the body, and as you break down the body, people get a step slower, their hands start to lower, and then you can start putting the heavier shots on them. And as you saw later in the first round, after he'd taken some body shots and being moved around the cage, he landed on Ishii. Later in the second round, he landed on Ishii. Third round, Ishii couldn't move around as much. He was kind of forced to engage a little bit. And when he engaged, Mo started landing hard shots. Mo was getting takedowns. Mo was controlling the pace. Mo was keeping him on the cage and beating him up. A lot of people get into the whole idea of you have to be exciting, and I get that because you want to sell. But the fact of the matter is a guy who's ex in, in exciting fights and loses fights isn't going to get your credit, isn't going to get your attention. You're not paying for that guy. Sage, North, Sage Northcutt lost two exciting fights. He's a bum. He should never be in the UFC. He should be out. He's not on this level. Paige Van Sant lost two exciting fights. She's a hype train. She's a fool. I can't believe they even thought she was going to be a top-rated top, top rated strawweight. 
they gave you what you wanted, exciting fight, but in not sticking to a game plan and not fighting to the strengths, to their strengths and against their opponent's weaknesses, they cost themselves wins. And those wins have cost them credibility in the eyes of the MMA media and the fans. And it cost both these people money because they wanted Van Zandt and they wanted North Cut to win. That's the difference between a veteran and somebody who's about their business and someone who's maybe caught up a little bit in the hype or the excitement or the idea of being a pro fighter. You don't fight to impress the fans. If you can impress the fans, if you can put on a show, you will. But your main goal is to win. And King Mo's goal was to win. Ishii was trying to win too, but King Mo wasn't doing the things that were going to allow him to get into position to win the fight the way he wanted to. He was playing it smart, attacking the body, using the jab, using feint, keeping Ishii between him and the fence, working him over and not engaging him on the level and at the times that he wanted to do it, Ishii wanted to engage Mo in. He just fought a smart, disciplined fight. Now, Ishii would have pushed, pushed it on Mo, and he would have come out trying to assert himself. I guarantee you King Mo knocks him out. But people don't come in on him like that because they know what kind of wrestler he is, and he can put you on your back and really put a world of hurt on you. Or if you run in, Mo's got some of the better boxing in MMA. He'll walk you into a counter shot. Ask Prasca from, the last, from last year's Risen. He came after him a little bit too hard. Ate a right hand, face first, out, cold. The first guy he fought in the first round of Risen, he took him down and just beat him within an inch of his life. There's a reason why people don't come right in on somebody. And as a person who's trained myself, and you know, you can say all you want about, oh, well, this guy didn't do this to me and didn't do that to me. Why didn't you go after him? Well, it wouldn't be the smart thing to do. Exactly. You're just telling me what I already know. You know there's an inherent danger in approaching him a certain way, so you don't. You, you don't go in on everybody that way because certain guys can hurt you, certain guys can't. People don't go in on King Mo because they know what's waiting for him. So they'll try to pick him apart. They'll try to wait till he gets lazy. They'll try to wait till he loses focus and then get an advantage on him. He's working on not allowing them having that advantages. And if they want to make it a boring fight, he'll make it boring. He'll just outbox you. He'll take you down. He'll win rounds. He'll score points. He'll go home, count his money, and go home with another win. That's what he's about, winning. Same thing that Tyrone Woodley's about. If he can be excited, he will be. But if he can just win, he doesn't care if it's controversial. He doesn't care if it's decisive. He just wants to win because as long as you're winning, people care. You get title shots, you get opportunities. Once you start losing, no matter how exciting you are, your opportunities, your money, and your fanfare goes down. So when you look at that main event there, um, I thought it was an interesting bout on just on paper. Uh, I think we talked about that last week, but it, a lot of you're right. A lot of people were saying Ari didn't live up to just about anything. A lot of people were basically calling it one of the worst fights they've ever seen in a year. So how do how does Bellator correct this? Um, you know, what do they really do with Kimo? He's someone who who is very clear that. He's doing this for the financial benefit. He's doing it for his finances and maybe nothing else. Now, I won't say nothing else, but he's definitely doing it for his finances. He, so what do they do with him? Man. He wants to be considered one of the best light heavyweights in the world, but he already knows he is. And everybody who knows MMA, who really knows it and isn't caught up in the – he's not in the UFC, they know he's UFC level. He, it's just a fact. I'm not saying this because I know the guy. I'm saying this because I know fights, and I know the fighters. And if you tell me – there aren't five to ten light heavyweights in the UFC division who he can't beat or five to ten heavyweights he can't beat, I'm going to call you a liar right now because we both know that's not true. There's guys in the UFC heavyweight and light heavyweight he can beat. That's a fact. The thing about it is Bellator actually uses people. What people don't forget about King Mo, what they don't know about King Mo is King Mo fights a lot. In the last year and a half, he's had like he's had almost nine fights. He fought. He's the only guy who he's the only major guy you know, major current guy right now who's ranked currently. Who fights in turn? Who fights in tournaments? He fought three fights in two nights. 
this time last year, and now he's getting ready to fight Krokop. He'll fight another two two fight in one night when he goes back to Japan to be in, to compete in the Risen Openweight Tournament again. King Mo fights a lot, so he cares about being the best. He cares about having a name. He cares about having a legacy. He's very aware of that. He just wants to get paid too. He's not going to be one of these guys who has a legacy and nothing else, and then complaining after the fact. If there's a fight and it can get him paid and it can move him further in his career, he's going to take it. He's the only guy going. He's the only named guy from Bellator going over to Japan to fight in this tournament, in a tournament where he has more more to lose than anybody else. Because he's the guy who's got the name. He's the guy who's fighting current competition and is fighting in a major organization and is you know gone eight and one in the last year, year and a half. He's the guy with something something to risk against a bunch of guys who are just coming up and establishing themselves. They get beat by Kimo. They got beat by a season, former Strike Force champion, former Bellator tournament finalist top ring Bellator heavyweight and light heavyweight he loses to one of these guys it's a whole nother story so he's a guy who Bellator uses a lot because he has name value he has fans he's good with fans and they try him out a lot he fights a whole lot and Bellator uses him anytime they can in any situation they can which is why he's going back over to Japan to fight Crow Cop in the second round of the tournament uh, I think in a, another week from now yeah, you know, Kimo's definitely one of those names of someone who I would always hope would make it to the UFC. We're going to talk about one other one later on today. But he's definitely someone that is you know, kind of unfortunate that he never had opportunity to make it to the UFC. But he's still done some great things in um, his career. So let's keep... He doesn't, uh, he, doesn't like how they, he doesn't like how they treat people. I'll tell you, there's, yeah. there, there, there's not... They can loud talk certain people. Dana White can loud talk certain people. Certain staff members can loud talk certain people. They ain't doing that to him. I can guarantee you that much. That ain't happening. And that's one of the reasons he, he probably won't be there because he's not he's not going to play that game. He's not going to let Dana White say this and that about him and it's all cool. That's not the kind of person he is. Anybody knows or knows that's not going to happen. So that's one of the reasons he's not in the UFC right now. Yeah, I could definitely um, – I could definitely – I would love to see uh, Dana White try to talk to uh, – King Mo the same way he tries to talk to some other guys, but that's another conversation for another day because that we, we both know how bad that would go. Um, so let's talk about some of the news that broke. You know, like I said, I thought that this was going to be a very slow week until today where we find out that the one fighter who could not afford to fail a drug test has done so with um, Christine Cyborg. She has been flagged for a USADA violation. Um, the news has continued to flow since then. It looks like it's been a diuretic that um, that she has failed for. And I think it's the same thing she failed for the first time when she was in strike force. But yeah, you know, she's going to be facing up to a one year ban. Um, Dana White has said that this isn't this basically this isn't a, a surprising situation to him. There's so many different, we've been talking about her the last few weeks about the new featherweight title and her not being there, her issues with, with weight cutting. And here it is, man. She's failed a drug test before um, this, and, and, and this is before her last fight. So here it is. She's failed a drug test. And now we're just sitting here looking like you can't really defend her anymore like it'll be interesting to see what happens what, what what people are saying over the next few weeks but it's going to be very difficult to defend her in any way shape or form yeah I'd, I'd have to agree the only thing the only thing I would ever I would think a lot of people who are fans of hers or who aren't fans of the UFC would say is the simple fact of if she didn't have to make a weight that's not her natural weight maybe she didn't have to use these diuretics because it's been 
it's been stated she he had a really hard time making this 140 weight. Like that's been that that's been shown in videos, that's been discussed on different websites, that's been discussed on different TV shows. So we know she was having she was struggling making that weight because it was five pounds lower than the weight the weight she usually fights at. And anybody who thinks five pounds isn't a lot to lose, when it comes to making these weight weight cuts, five pounds might as well be five hundred. It's brutal. And I don't know from experience, I'm just telling you what guys I know who fight have told me before. So I could see maybe her having to be on diuretics before and her being on them the whole time so that when she gets in to camp for a fight, she can shed the weight. But nonetheless, like you said, uh, the fact of the matter is she couldn't afford for this to happen. She had just really started to get develop a fan base because she had been fighting the UFC a couple times. They were really high-rated shows. She had put on dominant, if not scary, performances. People had started talking about the tide had kind of turned. Ronda had lost, so she was now considered the best pound-for-pound woman, woman fighter in the world. And she started getting some of that love and getting some of that respect. And essentially, in one fell swoop, she's she's lost it because of this. And I said before last week, you should never work for an employer who does not like you or does not have your best interest at heart. And the fact of the matter is, you can tell Dana just likes dealing with her. You can tell Dana has an issue with how she does business or how she is as a person because any chance he has to take a shot at her, he does. He doesn't do that with Rhonda. He didn't do that with Holly. He might have taken a shot at their management. He never took direct shots at them. Even Misha, he didn't really take shots at her. I mean, he wasn't great to her, but he never really took shots at her like that. But the minute this comes up, oh, well, I know why she didn't want to take the fights now. And if Ronda Rousey wins this fight, good God, if she wins this fight, you know what the first thing she's going to say is call out Cyborg for being a cheater and a PED user and a phony and a girl who has no confidence. That's why she's using these drugs and all this stuff. It's going to be open season on Cyborg. And since she's going to be suspended, if she is in fact suspended, she won't be able to say anything or anything she says, any explanation she has is not going to be good enough for anybody. It's going to be her word against against the UFCs. And when it comes to the fighters, people just tend not to believe them when it comes to whatever Dana says, whatever the UFC brass says. And they're saying that she's taking shortcuts and she's suspended and she's not the person she's made herself out to be. And unfortunately, that's going to be the second time that's happened to her. And, and this time it's going to stick because she's got more focus on her. She's got more eyes on her. She's, she's had more media on her because of the 145 title because of fighting in the UFC, because of the weight cuts. She's got all this extra attention. So now she's two or three times the star she was in when it happened in Strike Force. And now it's going to stick around two or three times longer. And she's kind of, she's not older. She's not old, but a year off, that's not doing her any favors, man. That's a year of not getting paid. That's a year of not fighting. That's a year of not being in the public eye, doing what you're known for doing. And it could very quickly have the tide turn right back in Ronda Rousey's favor if Ronda wins this fight. If Holly Holm or Ron Dami wins the fight, the, the public will get behind them because the best fighter is out. And not out because she got hurt or out because some weird coincidence. She's out because essentially she broke the rules. And no matter how you spin it, she broke the rules. She didn't ask for an exemption. She didn't take any of the steps to cover herself. She just did what I guess she felt was necessary. And uh, now she's paying the consequence for it. Do you think that they are going to cut Cyborg over this? Is this going to be, is that going to be the outcome? Can you see these two going back and forth at each other in the open and in the public in such a way that, that, that ends up with Cyborg getting cut from UFC and Zufa as a whole? I really don't know. And in one instance, I think they could because it, it's, it's quite clear to me nobody wants to really fight her. 
to be, you know, no, it just, it's very clear. Nobody wants to fight her at 145. It is painfully clear nobody wants to fight her at 145 or maybe one or two people. And to be honest, she'd be favored against anybody who fought at 145. She'd be favored and rightfully so to walk through them. So I don't know what they would do with her. Even if she got to 45, I think Cole might drop the belt. Rondamme might fight her. But I think most people, it's not worth it. And the people who would fight, fight her aren't high enough ranked or thought of high enough where she would get the money that she wants to get for fighting as a champion in the UFC. And um, also, I don't really think she wants to be in the UFC anymore. I think she's seen how they treated her. I, I think the, the title thing, the title belt thing is upset her. I think the fact that they made her go through this, jump through the hoops and, and the clown show of making 140, which doesn't exist in any, has women's fights, making her cut to that weight and the way they've talked about her and treated her. I, I don't think she really wants to be there either. I just don't know if the UFC would cut her just because they're not known for doing what's best in a fighter's interest, if you understand what I'm saying. They'll oh, you know, I definitely they'll, understand the, that. they'll put you on the bench. They'll talk about you like a dog. They'll not let you fight in other organizations and then make you come back and take whatever they're going to give you. But they're not in the habit of doing favors for people who aren't happy with them. And when she signed that contract, she, she essentially gave up a lot of the control that she claims to want now. You know, she's kind of stuck. She's got to do it the way they want to do it or she's going to be basically stuck. Ask Randy Couture. He tried to get out. Didn't work. Ask Jose Aldo. He's going to retire. I just want to be let out. They didn't let him out either. John Jones, they wouldn't let out. There's a lot of people who aren't getting let out. They might not use you, but they're not going to let you go somewhere else to apply your trade and make your name. Not after they've invested some kind of money in you and it helped expand your star. So I think she would like them to cut her. I don't think they're going to. I think they're just going to hold her under contract and wait and see. And maybe if she loses some cachet or maybe she gets knocked out in the fight or something, maybe then they'll consider cutting her after they've gotten all, they squeeze all the name value and and money out of her that they can get, but they're not going to do it one second before. That's not that's not how the UFC has ever operated. They don't do favors for anybody except themselves. And you brought up um, UFC 207, which is next weekend. Um, and yeah, it's funny because a lot of people have been talking about the promotion of that card where you have Ronda Rousey fighting um, or challenging Amanda Nunes for the women's bantamweight title, but I guarantee you, I don't. Do we even see Amanda Nunes in the um, actual promos? I think we only see her at the very end. So now we're dealing with a situation where Rousey is being pushed as the star, which she is. But this is a fight that she can lose. You know, we don't know what shape she's in. We don't know what kind of state she's going to be in, what, what mental state at all, because, you know, she's not talking to any of the um, MMA media outlets. So what are your thoughts on how this fight is being promoted right now? Like, it, and it's funny because someone brought up a, a point that if Amanda Nunes was white, blonde haired, blue eyed woman, this fight will be getting promoted completely different. Same thing with Cyborg, but since they're not, that the UFC is going about doing things this way, and we kind of see that going on with Paige Van Zandt as as well. So, what are your thoughts? Are are what are your thoughts right now on how UFC's two hundred seven is being pushed? I understand that to the degree that the racial component and the look component, but that's that's just common. That's just that's just reality. I, I mean, you could you could say it's the blonde thing, but I would say it's more of a who's who's more closer to being a feminine more attractive type woman and and um the fact of the matter is cyborg doesn't get pushed aside as much as you would think because she has a fan base amanda nunez does not have a fan base amanda nunez is lesbian but she doesn't have all the all the fan let gay and lesbian fans 
backing her and and supporting her she she doesn't have it she doesn't she doesn't really she didn't she's not even really big in brazil so you want the fight to sell you want it to be a big thing so you focus on the thing that everybody cares about and the fact that ronda's not giving a bunch of interviews and the ronda is holding back and ronda's picking her spots only makes her that much more attractive it's like if there's a guy or if you're a girl and there's a guy or if you're a guy and there's a girl and there's a girl who hasn't messed with around with a lot of guys hasn't dated a lot of guys she just been very picky you want to know more about her because there's there's an air of mystery about her there's an air of mystery about him now people are wondering where's Rhonda's mindset she must be mentally weak I don't know how many pieces I've read about how mentally weak she is and how scared she is and how she's controlling the MMA media you're just giving her more power she's the source of interest so of course they're going to focus on her if Amanda Nunes had a fan base they would focus on her but she does not have one and you can say it's because she's Brazilian well then why don't the Brazilian support her you tell me that if a bunch of Brazilians supported her, it'd be different, but they're not. She's not a big star. Anderson Silva's a big star over there. The Nogueira brothers are big stars over there. Jose Aldo's a big star over there. Amanda Nunes, she's not even a big star in the country she comes from. So I can't say that it's a racial thing. I might say it's a look thing because Amanda Nunes, to some people, is not more attractive than Ronda Rousey. But in any situation where there's a more attractive person, they're always going to get the source and the main push. Ask Oscar De La Hoya. He lost to Shane Mosley. Did Shane Mosley become a star? I don't think he did. I think Oscar De La Hoya was still the star because he's a named guy. He's a good-looking guy. He's the one with all the appeal. That's just good business sense. And the fact that Amanda Nunes demanded to get Ronda Rousey next instead of saying, I want Holly Holm or I want Julia Pena, that tells you all you need to know about where she stands because even Amanda Nunes does not see herself as Ronda Rousey's equal when it comes to business or money. Otherwise, she wouldn't have been demanding and begging for a shot at Ronda. She said, I'm going to do my own thing. Ronda comes back, she comes back. If she doesn't, she doesn't. She didn't do that. She goes, I'm waiting for Ronda. So she knows where the money is too. And if she wants the money to come in, then she needs to play her role, take whatever abuse they give her, get her money and move and win and go about her business. That, 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 See, I'm going to challenge you there. I'm going to challenge you there, Asata, because you said it's not a racial thing. And I'm not saying it is, but I'm saying that that is a component to this because the what is the perceived standard of beauty? You know, um, Rousey does represent that perceived standard, white, blonde, female. Um, Paige Van Zandt fits into that standard as well. Valentina Shevchenko fits into that standard. Carolina Kowalskowicz, all those women who have been promoted at some standard um in some standard higher than the other women all fit within that standard of what is a perceived beautiful woman and i'll give you an example of someone who is really considered very attractive but doesn't get the same type of promotion juliana pena i mean she's a knockout who has a tough win under a season win under her um under her belt and she doesn't even really get promoted as as much as um as these other women do who don't have the same type of resume as a Pena, as a Nunez. And, you know, with, with Pena, um, it'll be interesting to see how that fight that Pena has against Shevchenko coming up. It's, it's a main event fight. Of, I think it's a UFC on Fox event. It'll be interesting to see how that fight is promoted. I think Pena will get more of the promotional power simply because she has the better mastery of the English language. Shevchenko still has a very thick accent and um, doesn't speak English clearly, so I think that that's going to play against her in that upcoming fight. But I do think that that, that there is some element of 
uh, racial perceptions behind that because these a lot of these women represent what America sees as or holds up as beauty as opposed to what um, these Brazilian or Hispanic women do. I, I think that's legitimate. But once again, I would ask the question, why, why would, we, would be her excuse in her own country? Is she, I mean, I'm not saying she's unattractive. I think, I think she's appealing. But if that's the case, why isn't she considered attractive in her own country? Other Brazilian women who don't have Ronda Rousey's features, who are magazine covers, Mm-hmm. Who are on posters? Who are on? A, who are a lot of things? I'm not saying this. I'm not saying you're not right. I'm not saying that because I understand exactly what you're coming at. But the question is, why in her own country or with people from her own background, why is she not seen as attractive? Well, I don't even know if it's necessarily that because, like, there was but I was I'm listening. Just, I'm just saying, where where is her big following? We know Anderson Silva has a following. Anderson Silva might be good looking, some people might not, but in his country. A lot of women would swoon over Anderson Silva. They would find Anderson Silva very, very attractive. There are certain boxers who haven't been classically good looking, but in their culture and around people who are familiar with their culture or are part of their culture, they're considered very attractive. They're considered very sexy. And classically, they wouldn't be considered that. But they have a fan base and it kind of spreads. I'm just curious, where is her fan base? Like, what, what it, where is her fan base? Even her own country, Vitor Belfort's huge in Brazil. Anderson Silva, huge in Brazil. Jose Aldo, huge in Brazil. Why is she not huge in Brazil? Is it because of her management? Is it because she doesn't get out and sell herself? Is it because she's only a fighter and doesn't do the the covers and all stuff? And she doesn't want to do that and she doesn't want to dress up in a in a fancy dress and all stuff. You have to I have to understand everything. I have to understand that she's done similar things that Rhonda and Michelle Waterson and Misha Tate have done. Misha Tate and them have done risque things. And I'm not talking about tacky or over the top. They're just I like my body. I'm proud of my body. I'm going to showcase my body. I don't know that Amanda Nunes has done that. Maybe she has. I haven't heard about it. I'm sure it would have been pushed, you know, even Cyborg. Cyborg, she's never been pushed in any sort of, she's never been pushed as the badass and the beauty. She's been pushed as the badass. That's it. They found one direction and they put her in that and they single-handedly single, single, man, single handedly pushed for her to be a destroyer. She could fight men. She could destroy a man. Look what she did to Tito Ortiz in sparring. Nobody's ever exposed the other side of it. Nobody's ever pushed that side of it. The other girls who've gotten some run, even Michelle Waterson has gotten a little bit of run before. She's pushed that other side. She's pushed her, her politeness, her friendliness, her physical appeal. Misha Tate's done it. Ronda Rousey's done it. Valentina's done it. So what um, I think is interesting is that you brought up something about um, Nunez not selling herself. And I think that that's what's really going on right now because um, I was listening to MMA Beat earlier today and Lou Thomas was talking about how Amanda is still kind of caught, not want to say like a deer in headlights, but she's more like um, in a blissfully ignorant state. That's how he put it when it comes to her position in the uh, organization. And I think, it, and what I think will be interesting to see is if she wins this fight on next week and what her what her post fight interview will be what the conversation will be and what questions she gets asked by the media because i think there really is a, a strong talking point here in how this fight was promoted and what her value is to the ufc as a whole but yeah but you have you also have to ask the question it's kind of like this it's kind of like this it's like um it's like somebody like pit it's like a pit pit bull i like his stuff but have you ever noticed Pitbull's never had a really hit song that's just been Pitbull. Certain fighters have never sold until they've had another fighter on that stage with them. 
if she beats Ronda Rousey, we can talk about them pushing Ronda. But the thing is, if she beats her, they're going to push her. Is she star material? And I'm not just talking about her looks. I'm talking about her personality. Can she sell herself? Can she speak English? She can, can she even sell herself to, to, her, to her fellow Brazilian? Because anything she gets right now is being attached to Ronda Rousey. Misha Tate showed that she's a star independent of Ronda Rousey. Ronda Rousey is a star independent of everybody else. Misha Tate wasn't waiting for Ronda. Ronda wasn't waiting for Misha. They're big enough stars to do their own thing. If you're such a big star and you know you have this appeal and you know you can draw people in, why are you waiting for the big star to sell? Why aren't you making yourself a star? Conor McGregor made himself a star. He didn't, he didn't need Jose Aldo. Jose Aldo helped legitimize him, but he was already huge. He made himself huge. And, and I understand there's a look, and I understand the racial component, but at what point do we address some of the things people are and aren't doing? Conor McGregor's willing to go to, to huge lengths to make himself a name. Certain guys are too classy for that. They're too mature. They're too much of a traditional martial artist who care about honor. Well, that's why you're not getting certain opportunities. That's why Michael, Page, Michael Venom Page gets certain opportunities because he'll roll out the Pokemon ball and put the hat on. Somebody else who just wants to fight and win and shut up He's not getting those opportunities. And I understand that other component of it, but once again, most fighters aren't really going out of their way to sell themselves, to brand themselves, to call people out, to make a name for themselves. You know, I mean, if Amanda Nunes wanted to speak, I'm sure someone would listen, but has she been speaking very much? Who has she been talking to? Has she demanded? You tell me somebody wouldn't listen to her if she, she, wanted, she had something to say? I don't believe that's true but I don't know that she's demanded the media to listen to her. I don't know that she's made those call out. I don't know that she's talked enough on her own. I mean, as much as we can say Rhonda has that component going, Rhonda's really pushed to get herself out there. And you know, I, I definitely appreciate your insight on this topic, but when you mentioned the pit bull, I stopped listening to you. As soon, as, soon as you brought up that hack, that, mu that musical hack pit bull, I just, I just stopped talking. I just, I just stopped listening to you, man. I can't, I cannot support his, him, him being mentioned on this show at all. I, I just can't do it. On the show, No, I, I, I just can't do it, man. I can't do it. I, I can't sit here and allow you to talk about that guy who wears sunglasses inside a, a nightclub as a legitimate musical talent. I can't. Uh, I, I can respect that. I, 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 can't, I, I can't argue against that. I mean, a guy who only, I just can't do it, who, man. You can talk about anything else you want to, but but he is he's not allowed. <laughs> so okay. no, I'm just kidding. I'm giving I, you shit for it. No, I, I, like I said before, I can't name one song. It was a hit where it was just him. It's always <laughs> That's very true. It's That's always very true. true. So, so I, yeah, I also I, want to talk to you. I, I don't have a problem with it. I just, I'm just saying, once that star that lights on you. A lot of people can only do it when they have a star with them. The people who are really transcendent, they find a way to do it. Anderson Silva found a way eventually. Misha Tate found her own way. And I understand that still plays into that to a certain degree. But somebody has to tell me, what is Amanda Nunes doing to help further her cause? Is she pushing all the boundaries? Is she going over the top? Or is she just one of those people who just wants to fight and just wants to be classy and just wants to compete? If that's the, if that's the category she falls in, then I can tell you there's a reason why she's not getting that much attention. And it's the same reason all the other fighters who fall into that category, too. Good-looking fighters. Michelle Waterson could be bigger than she is, but she wants to, I don't want to call anybody out because I'm really friendly and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And then she calls somebody out three days later. No, call them out when Joe Rogan's right there or Brian Stan's right there or when Daniel Cormier's egging you on. That's sort of the thing that keeps you in the public eye. That's sort of the thing that brings you to that next level of stardom. 
certain people aren't willing to do it. And if you're not willing to do what it takes, and if you're not, like my dad said, if you're not exhausting every option available to you, I can't go with the racial component or the sexism component until you, until you exhaust every opportunity made available to you. Once you do that, then I can say, well, it's racial because she did everything she did. She did everything possible and y'all still didn't give her a shot. But if she's not doing everything possible, I can't, that can't be the first thing I go to. I got to see more. I got to see more from her. So I'm actually, you know, it's funny because there's there's another another topic that we're going to move to next that you were very right about, and it was the idea of throwing in the towel during um, the Doho Troy uh, Cub Swanson fight a couple of weeks ago. Um, Cub Swanson was talking on MMA Hour to Ariel Hawani that he was hoping as that fight went on that he was hoping that Choi's corner threw the threw the towel in to kind of bring it to an end because he knew that he was basically taking lives off of this kid's life, knocking years off of, of, of his career every time they got into exchanges. So it's funny. It's interesting to hear him bring this up after you talked about it on the show the week before. Yeah, a lot of people, when I, I wrote a, I wrote a piece on that, and I know you you did one as well. I did kind of a, a point counterpoint as far as the risk to both guys. And some people, I got a lot of pushback from people on Twitter. They were like, well, you know, I think yeah, I think you're overselling it. I think he didn't take that much damage. I think, you know, he's young enough he can recover. And I'm like, what world do you guys live in? Like, I don't care about age. I don't care about young enough. I'm talking about physical damage, but you're only allowed to take so many hard hits in your life before your chin and your faculties go. He probably took more than half of them in that fight. And if you read the social media and you talk to people, what is the most what's the thing they remember the most? They don't remember how back and forth it is. They don't remember the technique and the speed. You know what they talk about? I don't understand how that guy was still alive at the end of that fight. He should have been dead. They should have put Cub Swanson in jail for what he did to that guy. That's what everybody keeps saying. What's keeping him up? Why, how, how is he still standing? Why is nobody stopping this? When that's the only comments and the only thing people remember out of fight, you took too much punishment. And as a corner man, your job is to protect the fighter from himself. You don't want the fighter to want to quit. You protect him. You make the decision for him. You don't let him go out for another round of that. You, you just don't because the risk is too high even if even if he wins, the damage is done. It's just too high a risk. And you're dealing with someone's life and someone's livelihood. They might go from a seven-year veteran to a four-year veteran. These kind of fights have that kind of effect on people. And that was my concern. It's still my concern. And I'm glad to see the Cubs wants. And I'm sure Greg Jackson also thought the same thing. Anybody who's got any sort of sent overall comprehensive sense of what that kind of damage and what kind of that what kind of damage that kind of fight does to you. Would have thought about throwing the towel in and saving their fighter from themselves i'm not saying his corner did the wrong thing i'm just saying i disagree with it and i wouldn't let the fight go the four rounds i just wouldn't have done it so yeah it was definitely interesting to um hear him agree with you just so just so clearly you know like um it was it was a major it was a bad fight it was, I mean, it was a great fight everyone enjoyed it but yeah i'm i'm concerned and I want to see what Doho Choi looks like when he comes out for his next fight. Was, Hopefully not anywhere near any, anytime soon. Fights like that are great for fans. They're not great for fighters. I mean, you, yeah, might, they're not. you might get the win and you might get your little $50,000 bonus. But actually for your health and your future performances, fights like that are never, ever good for fighters. They are only good for fans. So let I, I'm not trying to downplay or attack anybody. But when you say that fight was good for his career, it really wasn't. It was good for you, which is good. It entertained you, which is good for his career. As far as his health and the length and quality of his career, that was not, never, those fights are never good for him. And I'll still enjoy him. I'll still watch him in ooh and ah and oh my God with the rest of y'all. But 
I, I understand that's just not good for him. And you know, until you until you know a fighter or you have a friend in there or you're even if you've been in sparring where you're just really getting whacked around and you really think about somebody else with four ounce gloves getting hit like this, it, it changes your perspective on things. It really does. When you know somebody in the cage or you or you've been in a similar position, then then it's not oh, wow, let's see how far this can go. It's like, why isn't someone stopping this? Because this guy's going to be ruined. And I'd rather someone stop it short and take one loss than let somebody pull out a win or just take a lot, take an extended beating and have their career shortened or fall off dramatically because of it. Yeah, and I'm wondering what his what the rest of his career would look like going forward. So um, I wanted to talk about one other topic before we close out the show today and it's, and it's Bibiano Fernandez and you know I don't know if you saw but he is going to be a free agent in eight days and even though he's 36 years old I think he's going to be turning 37 early next year he's probably one of the best fighters that have never stepped into the octagon he was supposed to fight in, in the UFC back I mean years ago but um, that never came to fruition so now we have the opportunity to come comes around again where he may be in the UFC. So what are your thoughts on Fernandez? And do you think that this is someone that should be brought in? I think he's a great talent, even at his age. But the thing about it was, I, as I understood it, the reason he went, he didn't go into UFC was a money issue. Yep. And even though he's, he's more of a, he's still more of a hardcore name than a casual name. I mean, he's not like an Eddie Alvarez who's, who everybody's seen fight everywhere. And He's familiar because he's fought in every single organization and won titles in every single organization. He's been on cable TV and all that. He's not familiar like that. So he's not going to get paid what he gets paid in 1FC. If he wants to come to the UFC, he's gonna have, he'll get a good contract, but he's not going to get the contract he gets from 1FC. He's not a star in the UFC. He's nowhere near a star in the UFC. He's a star at a hardcore, but the UFC already has the hardcores buying their shows. They don't have to worry about those guys. Those guys buy the shows anyway. He doesn't have anything that appeals to the casual fan or brings them in, nor does he, as far as I know, have a huge fan base outside of the U.S., which would help him break another, break into another TV market that they don't already have access to now. So outside of him being a really good fighter who no one really knows how good he is as far as, like, really knows, what's his selling point? What leverage does he have coming to the UFC? What's going to get him the money he wants to get? Because if money was the issue before... Uh, the UFC, if you haven't noticed, isn't just handing out contracts and checks anymore. They're trying to save money and pick up the quality of their events and lessen and pull back. So if he didn't have any leverage before, what's the leverage he's going to have now when the UFC is kind of making a lot of money, but they're going to start tightening their belts a little bit as far as the contracts they're handing out and, and who gets to fight on pay-per-view and who gets the big money fights and big money opportunities. Yeah, um, it'll be interesting to see if, if he does get in there because, like you said, that they're not they're not prone to signing these big checks, and right, and he's not a huge name. He's a name that someone like you or I may know, but someone who just watches uh, the promotion on a semi regular basis, they wouldn't really know who Fernandez is. So, um, with that in mind, your identity is UFC. If you haven't fought in the UFC before, or some you haven't trained with somebody in the UFC, like. We don't see you standing around the corner on the cage because you're training somebody and they mention you. You don't really exist. And so for their fan base and their market, he has no appeal. So if he wants to get paid, he'll stay where he's at. If he wants to fight the best, he'll come over. But he's not getting paid what he thinks he is. And he should listen very carefully to the many named fighters who headline cars have been co-main events, who are living in tents, trying to sell their ultimate fighter winning, winning 
bikes and begging for money and begging for bonuses because their their actual contract the salary is not enough for them to live on. If I was a fighter, I'd pay close attention to that. Why is a name fighter, former champion, selling their their motorcycle so they can pay for training? Why is the guy who fought the, the current light heavyweight champion of the world living in a tent? Like, why is one of their top ranked fighters homeless? How how is that? And yeah, it's definitely I'm supposed to get better when I'm not a name. It's definitely, it's definitely a tough situation to see, but um, it'll be interesting to see what he gets paid if he does make it into the UFC at some point in time in the near future. But with that in mind, man, we're going to go ahead and close out this edition of the show. We have, but before we go, I want to talk about next week's show. We will, doing, we will be doing an end-of-year special with myself. Shawan will be there. Um, the brains behind the business, Michael Ford, will be on the show. Um, Adam Martin, who does a lot of work for MMA ratings, he's uh, definitely he's definitely agreed to be on the show as well. And I have one other special guest that I'm not going to announce quite yet because I haven't 100% confirmed him, but there's more potential for one other person to be on the show as well. And we'll be going over some of our favorite moments and fight, fights and fighters from 2016. It's going to be a fun conversation. I'm going to make it pretty interesting, but it'll be next Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. We got to push it back an hour to make sure everyone is able to get on. But um, it's definitely yeah, a, a great show, and I think everyone everyone should hear. What's up? You said special guest, but you already told the fans that I'm going to be on the show, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Sir, people don't pay to see you, man. People don't pay. People don't pay to see you quite yet. But no, um, yeah, it's it's going to be fun. I, I'm going to try to make it a little bit more interesting rather than just talking about you know who who was best and why. It's going to be um pretty good and I'm looking forward to hearing everybody give us their opinions on these awards that don't really mean shit in the end hey it's still fun it's still a good conversation people love it even though people talk about rankings and awards don't count why do so many people click on websites and listen to podcasts and watch countdowns on TV shows discussing them if they don't count if they don't matter because they're fun and, and people, a lot of people care a lot of people care Right, a lot of people definitely do care. Um, what are you working on this week? Um, I'm hoping part two of my developing a prospect uh, is coming out this week. I'm currently working on part three, and if I can really like, if I can really buckle down, because this is going to be a this one piece I'm working on is actually going to be a hard one to pull off. It's actually going to be explaining how Edmund Tartarian, I can't say his name last name, but Rhonda's coach it's going to focus on the positive things that he brought to her game. And that's an uphill battle. And, and I'm a fan. I actually c- can name a couple of things he did well, but it's an uphill battle. And it's one I would, I'm a little risky to put out there because I can't imagine every analyst and every technician is going to just be like, what are you talking about, dude? He is awful. And I agree. He's not great, but he did add some, some layers and some nuance to her game that helped her get to the title. So I'm going to try and do that, but I'm definitely working on my, uh, final part of developing a prospect, which would be part three. Great. So I'm definitely looking forward to uh, reading that. Um, you've been doing some great work, man, and you definitely add a lot of value to the site. I'm so we appreciate you. I, you. Work with you guys. I don't know how y'all do it. I'm like, how do these guys crank this stuff out, man? This is like killing me. I'm really like sweating over here. It's definitely tough, man. But hey, it's, it's, it, it, once you get into that groove, you'll, um, you'll, you'll find the uh, joy in it. Yeah, definitely. It, it's a fun process. It's fun when people comment that they like what you did or they want to discuss it with you. It's like, wow, you want to have a discussion about something I did. Pretty cool. 
But yeah, we will be back next week, man. And I'm looking forward to hearing what you um, put together and having you on the show next Wednesday. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you once again for the opportunity, man. I, I love being part of the show. And, and I hope everybody who's a fan of the show appreciates the work Raphael puts in. He does a lot of work. And Michael funding this and directing everything from behind the scenes. I hope you all appreciate what we're trying to do for you all. And we're just going to keep getting better for you. So with that in mind, you know, we will be back next week. And everyone have a great weekend and, uh, and happy holidays and all that good stuff. Yeah, enjoy your holiday, sir. You too, man. No working.